Well, good evening. Good evening. I'm so glad to be back. It feels like it's been forever. Uh, but I'm so glad I was out of town last weekend. Uh, but we had the wonderful Lane Malicki and one of my old youth leaders uh, came and was able to speak with you guys. Uh, we're actually also not going to be meeting next week because of Easter. Uh, everything's kind of crazy. So we don't have any college uh, morning or evening. So we will still have like family service across the street in the morning. Uh, and I mean, you could come here next week, but the doors would be locked. But there's a cool playground right out there if you're interested, or trees to climb, cars to vandalize, whatever you want, whatever you want. Uh, next Sunday night, this will not happen, but you can, you know, whatever, I don't care. Uh, so we have uh, also this evening, though, what's so incredibly special is that I get to share with you uh, just a glimpse into what made Jacob the way that Jacob is, right? We've been looking at how David has been built, what he was founded upon. Well, Jacob, who's me, by the way, where did he come from? (laughs) What made him into the man that he has now become? And the truth is that a lot of who I am was founded on a particular Christmas. When I was seven years old, we had Christmas at my grandparents' house, and I received probably one of the greatest Christmas gifts I'd ever, I've ever gotten. Okay. Number one of all time was a stretch Armstrong that I got in fourth grade. Uh, but this one was probably about number two, if that spot wasn't stolen by the Millennium Falcon that I got in fifth grade. But maybe number three was seven years old for Christmas. I received pencils. Okay. And I know that that sounds kind of lame. You're like, whoa. <laughs> what are you, an orphan? Or like, I don't know. Like, you're probably wondering, like, what, what's up with this Charles Dickens Christmas that I apparently experienced? Uh, but in fact, these pencils were so special to me uh, because they weren't just ordinary pencils. These pencils were, like, shiny and, like, had cool colors. They had uh, this, like, cool, like, uh, grip on the bottom that was, like, chiseled out to make, like, these shapes. And then on the top, they had these super awesome custom erasers that were kind of, like, superhero things and, like, shapes. And it was super, super awesome, right? And that's a big deal when you're seven, right? Pencils are like a big part of your life. You have pencils and like clothes and like, that's it. Like that's, that's what your life is. Clothes sometimes, right? But we had these pencils and I was given them. I received them from my grandparents. I thought, wow, this is it. Like life, I've just peaked. I peaked at seven, right? There's no, there's no upwardness from this moment. And I got to enjoy those pencils. I got to draw off those pencils and just marvel at my pencils for about 24 hours uh, until the next day when I woke up and discovered that those pencils were all broken in half. All of them. There were like four and they were all broken in half. And I immediately stopped and thought, what has happened? What monster would be capable of such an atrocious act. And I realized in that moment that the only solution, the only potential perpetrator was my younger sister, who was five at the time. And I must have done something to upset her or irritate her. I did something to her that frustrated her to the point where she must have found my pencils, knew that I loved them, and broke them all in half. And so scrambling mentally in that moment, I thought, well, what did she get for Christmas yesterday? And I thought of the super awesome Disney Princess Foursquare Ball. And that was her favorite gift that she had received on Christmas morning. And so, being the righteous lover of justice that I was, I sought out the Foursquare Ball. I brought it into my room. And for maximum poetic justice, I grabbed one of my broken pencils and popped the ball. Man, just stabbed it. And Jasmine was, ah! and died. 
I killed the ball there in my hand. And I felt so accomplished, right? I just knew, I knew, oh, the Lord is moving through this moment, right? Like, this is it. Like, God is, I'm his hammer of justice. Lord be praised. Jesus is upon us. This is a Christmas miracle, right? I was so excited in that moment to have enacted this justice. And as soon as my parents found out, though, they did not see it as justice. And so they saw it as fighting and Rightfully so. And so my sister and I had to apologize to each other. We were both super upset. She started crying. I was crying. And we were just trying to explain to my parents, like, what happened and all these things. And my parents were so insistent, though, that we apologize to one another. They were so insistent that we try to mend our relationship. They were telling us, you've got you to gotta fix this. You've got to fix your relationship. You're going to be brother and sister forever. Family is forever. That's what they told us. Anytime we fought, all through childhood, family is forever. Fix it. We said, okay. So we apologized. We mended our relationship. We decided, you know, we can move on from this. We had a very lengthy discussion about the benefits and negatives of popping each other's, you know, balls and breaking each other's pencils. And we reached a point of agreement. And we decided, you know what? Yeah, we can move on. You know, we can still be brother and sister, families forever, whatever. And we moved on, right? Our relationship was brought back together. We were mended. The conflict was resolved. But the truth was that in that moment, my pencils were still broken and her ball was still popped, right? In that moment, even though the conflict had been resolved, the consequences still remained. And the reality is that a lot of us have been in that moment where maybe we had a conflict or there was some sort of wrong committed And we've resolved it, right? We've moved past it. We forgave that person or that person forgave me. It was two semesters ago and so you've just moved on. But the consequences are still with you. The reality is that we are constantly finding ourselves in the midst of consequences of our own or others' sin. At this point, maybe you're thinking about that group project that everyone was so on board except for Keith. Or whoever. It's always someone named Keith, though. Keith! He wouldn't show for the meetings. He didn't do his part right. The robot couldn't pick up the pencil correctly. It would just fall over. Keith made your group project fail. Or maybe you thought of, man, you were in that moment. You had uh, that financial decision. And you yourself made the wrong call, man. You took out too many loans. You spent too much on that credit card. And you found yourself in financial debt, even right now, you're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what to do with these consequences that I'm surrounded by based on my own mistakes. Maybe you went home or maybe your parents came in for this weekend. Maybe you're going back for Easter and you're not looking forward to it because your family is dysfunctional. Because your parents still fight about which one of them you get to see more of on breaks. Or maybe they're still together and they just don't like each other. You go home and it's a battleground. There's dysfunction because of the sins, because of the mistakes of others in your family. Or there's just drama because your brother's doing this or your sister's done that. Maybe that conflict was resolved, but those consequences are still very real, very heavy. The reality is that we will always be surrounded by negative consequences. The reality is that our world is broken. People are broken. Therefore, we will continue to make mistakes. Others will make mistakes around us and we will all be reaping the consequences. And when that happens, many times we respond by getting frustrated, right? Or or maybe even bitter. If it's my fault, then maybe I feel guilty and I withdraw. If it's someone else's fault, maybe I just get angry and I blash out. As people, we will always be in the midst of consequences. But as believers, 
My question is, how do we respond to them? As believers, how do we act? How do we resolve? How do we, how do we move and navigate through these negative consequences that will always be in our lives in some capacity? All semester, we've been looking at the life of David. We've been trying to understand, man, what, what made David tick? Right? What, what built him to be the man that he was? We've been looking at his stories, the things that he did. We've been looking at his psalms, the things that he wrote. We've been trying to wrap our minds around, man, what made David who he was? Because he's the one guy in all of Scripture that God looked at and said, that's a man after my own heart. That's someone who understands me on just a level that other people don't. And so we're trying to understand David in an attempt to put ourselves in that spot in order to acquire for ourselves that heart. Because when I see the beautiful language describing David in Scripture, I want to be that man after God's own heart. I want you to be that man or that woman after God's own heart. So we've been looking at how David responded to lots of stuff like sin or or failure. We've been looking at his response to success. But this evening, what I want us to look at is how did David respond to the consequences of sin? both his sin and others. And I love this passage because it's almost the darkest moment we find in David's life. We're about to basically see his rock bottom. But yet it's one of the moments where he shines the brightest. Because of this whole semester, you've probably noticed there are times that we learn from David's successes. There's probably been more times that we've learned from his failures. But this moment, when he's surrounded by the consequences of sin, he responds so well because he puts his mind in the right place. He puts his heart in the right place. And he puts God in his right place. That's what's so incredible about David. But we start off on a really down note. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we start off in the middle of a conversation. Okay, so Nathan, God's prophet, is speaking to David, and he tells David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan is telling David, look, you've been caught, man. It says, David, this sin that you committed, God knows about it. About a month ago, Matt Morton was here and he was speaking to us about how did David respond? What did David do with this lady named Bathsheba? And basically it was really bad news, right? Like David was up on his roof. His army was away at battle. He's just kind of hanging out. He sees this lady across the rooftop, says, yeah, I can dig that. So he invites her over to his palace. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then he's like, oh, snap. Like, she needs to have sex with his, her husband. And so he brings her, her husband to town to try to cover up the pregnant thing. And her husband won't sleep with her because he's too worried about his troops. And so then David decides, well, I guess I just have to kill her husband. That's logical. And so he sends Uriah, her husband, out to battle, withdraws the army from Uriah, just leaves him out to dry. He dies. David indirectly murders Uriah. And so he does all this. He, he kind of goes through all these actions. And this is probably months later. Nathan comes to David. He says, David, that Uriah thing was not cool. That Uriah deal was really bad. David, 
You've done evil in the Lord's sight. David, you have despised the Lord. Nathan tells David, man, there's some bad times coming. And realize, though, as we launch into what Nathan's about to explain, the prophecy Nathan's about to unfold, the consequences that David's about to experience aren't just because of what he did with Bathsheba. We're not, we can't pin all of these negative consequences on just that one act. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the reality is that we're not often destroyed by just one single mistake or one single act or one single sin. Instead, what happens is that we, leave, we have a life and we have maybe this one type of sin, right? We, we categorize it as some S's of sloth and sex and silver and those types of things. And that will creep in and will rest on my foundation of who I am. And I let it sit and I don't do anything about it. I don't repent. I don't run the other way. And so that sin kind of builds and builds and builds and builds on itself. And over time, it gradually grows and grows and grows until it destroys me. David has been leading a life for years of seeing women as sexual objects, as just things to be used. He's been driven by his passions. He sees a woman, he takes her like property. He's been doing that for years. And it's in this moment that it destroys him. This is the culmination of years of sin where God says, enough. And so God speaks through Nathan and he tells David, therefore, now therefore, because of those things you've done, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me, you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you, David, out of your very own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In other words, I will do this. I will punish you in front of all of creation, David, everyone will see the consequences of your sin. Because David, in the midst of his success, remember, was supposed to seek God and search himself, but he failed. He failed to search himself thoroughly. He failed to root out that sexual sin. So it's culminated into this moment where God says, enough is enough. Consequences are coming. God is repeating this idea that our sin is serious. The very first message of the semester, we saw the guy, Uzzah, touch the Ark of the Covenant. God killed him. Why? Because his sin was so serious. God's telling David, your sin is serious. You are going to reap what you have sown, David. And this isn't just like an Old Testament thing, right? This isn't just an idea that, you know, now though we're all, we're all under grace and everything's cool. This is an idea that our sin is still incredibly serious. It's still so serious. So we need to understand that when David tells Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, well, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We need to understand that there is still grace in this moment, right? Our God is not different in the Old Testament or New Testament or now. It's the same God with the same characteristics. He's always been full of love. He's always been full of justice. 
And we see both of those ideas coming into effect. He says, David, I'm going to have grace. I'm going to pour out grace upon you. I'm not going to kill you, even though you deserve it. Even though in the law, you and Bathsheba should both be killed. I'm not going to do that. But because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that you just conceived with Bathsheba, the child you tried to hide by bringing Uriah back, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that baby because of your sin. The consequences for David's sin were huge. Right? The crime was resolved. David, he asked me, he says, I've sinned. He's begging forgiveness. The Lord says, yeah, hey, I've put that sin away. This conflict, David, it's resolved. But here's the thing, man. There's still consequences. You made a mistake. You fell down, broke your arm. I'm going to forgive you, but your arm is still broken. That ball still popped. Those pencils are still snapped in half. David, the consequences are still with you. That's why Paul tells us that we shouldn't be deceived. It says, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is for us now. If we sow these seeds of sin and destruction, we will reap consequences that are serious. The prophet Hosea talks about the nation of Israel. He says, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They're turning away from the Lord. They're sowing this wind of of strife and running away from God. Therefore, they will reap the whirlwind. Man, it'd be great if then, like, you know, our application point, our takeaway from this is, okay, so don't sin, right? (laughs) Cool, right? That'd be awesome. But we can't do that, right? The reality is that even though I'm a believer, even though I placed my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, even though I'm fully adopted into God's family, even though the Bible tells me I'm a new creation, the reality is that there are still parts of me that are broken. There are still parts of me that are sinful. There are still parts of me that want to fight against every single desire I have to glorify the Lord. And when I fight against those desires, when I pull away from the Lord, that is always going to be sin, and that sin will always bring consequences. It will look different for different people in the severity or the timing of it, but it's going to happen. I'm going to reap that whirlwind at some point. Either I will reap it or someone close to me will, which is honestly, I think, even more tragic. We can't stop sinning. We can't stop the people around us from sinning. That whirlwind is coming. So my question is, what will you do when it comes? What will you do in the midst of that whirlwind? Maybe what are you doing right now as you face the consequences of your mistake or your father's mistake or your brother's mistake your friend's mistake what are you going to do you're going to get bitter you're going to withdraw you're going to lash out what are you going to do what we see in David is he immediately prays what we see in David is he immediately stops and he says I've got to get my heart in the right place. Therefore, I'm going to pray to the Lord. God afflicts the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. The child became sick. Therefore, David sought 
God on behalf of the child. David fasted. He went in and lay all night on the ground. We actually find out that David spends a week, seven full days fasting, lying face down on the ground, praying on behalf of this child, praying for God's forgiveness, praying, asking for God's grace. He leads himself into heartfelt prayer. And what's so tragic is that a lot of times when we are caught in the midst of our consequences, man, we don't pray like that. We don't give it that same time and attention. A lot of times when we're caught in our consequences, maybe sometimes we'll pray, we'll ask God for forgiveness, right? We'll hear like a talk or a podcast and says, you should, you should ask for forgiveness. We'll be like, okay, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I'll do that. And then we say, hey God, you know, sorry about that thing, but good thing Jesus died for it. Wink, right? And we just move on. I had buddies in college who were involved uh, in a youth ministry here in town. Uh, and they were kind of a little, I don't know, crazy. And so what they would do uh, is sometimes they would go out and they would like climb things that they weren't supposed to climb. They would do things uh, that were like borderline illegal, you know, like not overtly illegal, but probably kind of, okay? So they would do these things and I would ask them, be like, hey, you know, like, you sure? You sure you should be doing that? Like, you sure you should be in that place? Are you sure you should run over that thing or blow that thing up. Like, are you sure you should be conducting yourselves in this way? And they would say, hey, freedom in Christ. That was their mantra. Freedom in Christ, bro. (laughs) Freedom in Christ. I said, okay, well, it seems to be abusing scripture, but okay, I kind of get on board with that. They'd be like, yeah, man. Like, don't worry. We're not under the law, right? They say, you know, we have this mindset. We have this idea that, man, we've been freed to move about. We can move about the cabin freely. We're at cruising altitude. Christ has taken us to the level where, man, we're, we're free. America, free, right? Like, we're, that's where we are. And they decided, man, we have the freedom to go and move in these different ways. They treated, honestly, their, their mistakes and I think their illegal activities, uh, they treated it very flippantly. And so they would sometimes kind of be like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, sorry, God. Like, literally, they would say, sorry, God. <laughs> Like, man, like, come on, bro. Christ bump, or I don't know. Like, they do stuff like that. But they, they had these moments where they would just flippantly dismiss their sin, where they would flippantly just move on. And I just think about, man, what if I wronged a loved one? Man, what if I did something against my family member, or my best friend, or my wife? Would I just ask for forgiveness like that? Would I just do it flippantly, offhand? Would I go before them and tell them I'm so sorry? David is heartfelt in his prayer. And he doesn't just go before the Lord for that one day, right? Seven days. And it's not that he even goes out into the nations. It's not that he's moving out. He pulls back into the quiet of his own palace. We find out that only his servants are seeing him during this time. David was the king of a country, right? He had a lot of staff meetings and like ribbon cuttings and like there's a lot of stuff that he needed to do throughout the week, but he pulled back from all of those things because he didn't want to involve a ton of people, right? He didn't want to put up that Facebook status of bummed, frowny face, cat smiling, you know, whatever. Like he didn't do that. 
Instead, he said, man, I'm going to pull back. I'm not going to involve all these people, which is honestly something that we like to do a lot. A lot of times if we have a, you know, an issue that arises, we pull in people that really probably shouldn't be involved. I would do prayer requests with junior high kids when I was still doing youth ministry. We'd be sitting around the table at the end of Bible study. We'd be like, all right, you know, you guys get prayer requests. And someone would be like, yeah, yeah. Like every single week, someone would be like, yeah, I have, I have this friend that we really need to pray for, Jimmy. I was like, man, like what's going on with Jimmy? Like what? What does he need prayer for? He'd be like, man, Jimmy's just, he's just the worst. Oh. And then someone else at the table would be like, oh my gosh, yes. Like Jimmy just like, oh my gosh. Like he's just the worst. And they would just kind of like gang up and they'd be like, oh my gosh. He, he sat on my dog or what? Like, I don't know. Like they'd have these things that he did and they'd like kind of gang up and they'd talk bad about him. And they would just have this moment where they would like have these backhanded kind of prayer requests where they're like, yeah, you should totally help me pray for that person because, oh, bless his heart. He's just an idiot, right? Or something like that. And we do that, right? We have that moment where we're like, oh man, could you help me just pray for Stephanie? Like, God, God bless Stephanie. Her hair is just so frizzy. It's a mess. Like we just have those moments where we have these strangely directed prayers and we bring in people that probably shouldn't be involved. We're like, can you pray with me about you know who? Like, mm-hmm, right? We have that moment <laughs> where we don't really need to be pulling those people in. David says, you know what? I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to pour ashes on my head and be like, oh. Instead, he pulls back to his palace in the quiet. He says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray here. You know, sometimes we need to involve people in our prayers. Sometimes there is a moment where maybe we shouldn't handle it on our own. We need to bring someone in, but let that be like one person, two people, your small group. There's a very fine line between offering up your prayer requests about other people and just gossiping. So have that mindset. Put your heart in the right place where you are humbling yourself before the Lord, realizing that ultimately your sin is against God. David realized that his sin ultimately was against God, so he treated it it as such. So he pulls back. He prays. Lies down on the floor. Humbles himself. Says, God, please, please have grace on this child. Please provide forgiveness. And God hears his prayers God says no. God takes the life of that kid. And as soon as David hears about it, he's wrecked, and he's upset. But then he moves on. He starts to eat, has dinner, talks to his wife. And his servants come to him. They're like, hey, whoa, whoa, what is this thing you've done? They say, you fasted, you wept for the child while he was alive, but now that the child is dead, you've arisen? And ate food? Like, David, what's going on? Like, why aren't you still mourning? Why aren't you still lying on the floor fasting? David says, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept for, I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. So why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go, or I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's telling his servants, man, I'm trying to keep a realistic perspective trying to get my mind right. I realize that, you know what? This moment is tragic, but it's happened. It's in the past. I've got to move on. I've got to maintain a healthy perspective. He uses this terminology 
It talks about how the son, he will go to the son. Some people use this as an argument for uh, the age of accountability that these children, uh, that God saves children. Some people use it that way. Some people don't. Either way, David is definitely saying that at some point, he will die just as his child did. At some point, he will pass on. He's telling his servants, you know what? Ultimately, I realize that this consequence is serious and severe, but it's not eternal. There are bigger things at play. David's telling his servants, you know, I've got to keep my mind in the right place, which is something that we often struggle with. Because a lot of times when we are in the midst of the consequences of our sin, we can choose one of two paths. Sometimes we completely just forget the consequence, right? We forget it way too soon. When I was in college, I went to a midnight premiere of a movie. Don't remember what movie. Just remember it was great. Just chuckling along, elbowing buddies. Oh, this is so wonderful. Left the movie theater, realized that I didn't have my wallet. So I went back to the movie theater. At this point, it's like 3 a.m., but that's cool. I was a sophomore. I was young. Now I would be dead. But I go back, look for the wallet, can't find it. Ask the staff, they can't find it. Ask them the next day, still haven't found it. Someone took my wallet. And so in that moment, I was a little, I was upset. You know, I didn't have a lot of cash in my wallet because, you know, college. But I did have, you know, cards and things that were valuable to me in that way. And so I had to replace my driver's license, had to get a new card, call the bank, tell them to cancel things, had to kind of get all that stuff lined up. My girlfriend, now wife, uh, told me, hey, you know what? I was going to give you a wallet for your birthday anyway. So here, I'm going to give you a new wallet. Super awesome, nice wallet. I was like, oh, thanks honey bunches. And so I, you know, put all my new stuff, got all lined up, right? Got all my stuff back, new student ID, all those things, put it in the wallet. So pumped. About a week later, I go back to the movies, enjoy just a rousingly good film, leave the theater. As I'm driving away, I think, (laughs) I don't have my wallet again. So I go back to the theater, look under the seats, can't find it. Ask the staff that day, the next day, they can't find it. Someone took my wallet again. And in that moment, I realized not only that I had lost two wallets in the span of two weeks, complete with all of my cards, but I thought, man, how tragic that I didn't take that first wallet-losing moment as a learning opportunity. How tragic that I continue to wear athletic shorts like an idiot to the movie theater, right? Like, why don't I just wear pants or... The, get the chain that goes like to the back pocket with like a skull on it, right? Like, why don't I do, why don't I just get this Velcro wallet and just stick it in my chest? Like, what, why didn't I do something about this failure, right? Like, why didn't I address these consequences? The reality is that, man, I just, I just forgot about it. Man, when was the last time that you had just some sort of sin that you've fallen into over and over and over again? What struggle do you consistently go back to? What mistake do you constantly fall for? Because you're unwilling to learn from those consequences. Because you're unwilling to realize those consequences are severe. You forget it way too soon. Or maybe you're on the opposite side. You don't forget the consequence too soon. Instead, you focus on it way too much. Many times we find ourselves in the middle of a consequence. And it just becomes our whole world. And it cripples us. Many times we feel just like a dog who has disappointed its owner. Kylan, come here. Kylan. 
Is that yours, dude? Did you chew up that? Pogo, what's this? Come here, Pogo. I really think that might have been us. <laughs> <laughs> Man. How many times do we feel like that? How many times are we in the midst of a consequence and we look at it and we just think, oh my gosh, there's no, there's no going on. And it cripples our ability to approach that person that we wronged or it cripples our ability to approach the God who we sinned against. How many times have we focused entirely way too much on that consequence? And it wrecks us. It drives us just deeper and deeper into ourselves. We lose perspective. David says, I don't just need my heart in the right place through prayer. I need my mind in the right place by keeping the correct perspective. I need to realize that this consequence is legitimate, but that it won't last forever. We need to have that mindset that David had. We need to put our hearts in that place. We put our minds in that place. And like David, we put God in his correct place. As soon as David found out that his child was dead, he saw, or as he's finding out, he saw that his servants were whispering together and he understood that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. David doesn't just respond with prayer or with the right perspective. He responds to this consequence with praise because he realizes that God is above all these things. He realizes what we now have written down in our scripture in Romans 8, that God will work all things for the good of those who love him. He realizes that there must be a plan behind this consequence, as painful as it is. But the reality is that, man, when we're in the midst of some sort of consequence, especially if it's the consequence of someone else's sin, man, our minds don't just immediately jump to, praise God. As soon as my sister's ball was popped and my pencils were broken, as my parents were trying to bring us back together, there were consequences with them as well. I was taken away from everyone else by my dad. He's like, okay, Jacob, that's it. You know, you, you're going to have to get spanked, right? My family, when we were that young, we did spankings. If you don't believe in that, that's fine. That's cool. Give your kids, you know, no-no beans or whatever. But we did spankings. <laughs> that's how we learned. And so in that moment, I was like, all right, you're going to get spanking. And in that moment, I was like, oh, thank you. Right? Praise you, Father. Thank you for disciplining me. First, truly the Father who loves this child will discipline this child. Right? I didn't immediately jump to that conclusion. I didn't just, quote, focus on the family and be like, oh, you're so right. Dr. James Dobson, absolutely. Right? Like, there wasn't that moment where I wanted to praise and exalt my father. But in that moment, my dad, my parents, every single time we were spanked, they would begin it and end it with the same way. They would begin it by telling us, you know, I'm only doing this because I love you. And then, pow. And then, uh. And they stoop back down. You know, I only did that because I love you. I said, liar. <laughs> liar. But now I respect it. I'm like, that's true. Okay, so I realize in this moment, looking back, I'm like, you know, yeah, they did out of love. I understand. And it's one of those things where we realize when David realizes that God was punishing him, 
He was having him face the consequences, not because he disliked David, not because he wanted to drive David away. He was letting David face the consequences because it would grow David. It would develop David. It would, in fact, not chase David away, but it would bring David closer to God himself. But man, how many times have you been in the midst of a consequence that you just blame God for it? How many times you get angry or bitter and you blame God for something that many times is your fault? David says, God, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to realize that you are above all things. God, I'm going to realize that you have promised me that you love me. God, I'm going to trust in that truth. So he was still, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he's still. And he remembers God's grace. He says, God, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to give you praise because I know that these consequences are out of love. But the consequences weren't over. The reality is that David moves on from this moment. As soon as this little story is done unfolding, as soon as his first son dies, what we see is another son of David, a guy named Amnon, rise up. And Amnon uh, becomes infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. And Amnon decides, well, the only way that I can uh, uh, you know, make sense, the only way that I can appease this lust within me is I'm going to take Tamar and I'm going to rape her. So he tricks her into his tent. He rapes her. Tamar runs to her other brother, Absalom. She tells Absalom what happened. Absalom hates Amnon. Hates him for two years until he finds the perfect opportunity to murder Amnon. David's second son is now dead. Absalom then has to flee the area, right? Because he gets in trouble. You can't kill the king's son. So he flees and he surrounds himself with people that love him. And they're like, man, you know what? You should be king. Absalom, you shouldn't let your daddy, man, he's outdated, man, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so Absalom says, yeah, you're right. And he stirs up this revolt and he brings these people into Jerusalem. He chases David out and he forces David off of his throne. David's on the run again, afraid of his son who wants to murder him. And in that moment, David wrote Psalm 3 that we read at the very beginning. He wrote Psalm 3 where he says, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul that there is no salvation for him and God. God, there are people around me who hate me, who want to kill me. And God, they're telling me that there is no salvation for me, that God, you have nothing to offer. He's saying, God, these consequences are too severe because Absalom doesn't only take the throne, Absalom abuses the throne. He rises up in that moment already fulfilling parts of Nathan's prophecy that there would be evil within David's house, already using that sword that Nathan said would never depart from David's family. Absalom rises up and he does something incredibly evil and twisted. He builds a tent on the roof of the palace where the whole city can see. And he uses that tent to sleep with every single one of David's wives and concubines. And he fulfills the rest of Nathan's prophecy. That God would take what David had done and bring it directly into David's face. Not only David's face, but every single person in Israel would know that David was a failure. David gets back to be king. But he's still a failure. He takes the throne wants to make amends with Absalom, but his right-hand guy, a guy named Joab, chases Absalom, finds him in the woods, kills him. 
And now David's third son is dead. And David, in that moment, when he finds out that Absalom was in fact dead, he was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate in front of the whole city, and he weeps. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is mourning and weeping for the death that was a consequence of his sin. David is reaping the whirlwind. David is realizing that no one mocks God, that whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But what's so incredible about David is that in that exact same moment, he doesn't just write Psalm chapter three, verses one and two. He doesn't just write, God, this consequence is too severe. God, these people want to kill me and it's too much. Instead, he also writes in that moment, In the midst of that consequence, he says that, God, you are a shield about me. God, you are my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing, God, be on your people. David says, in that moment, God, I'm still going to praise you. Even in the midst of this incredible consequence that didn't end with the death of one son, but moved down the line that killed three of his sons, ruined his family, ruined his reputation. David says, no, I'm going to keep my heart in the right place. I'm going to keep my mind with the right perspective. And God, I'm going to put you where you belong as the Lord. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to acknowledge that salvation belongs to you. Man, the reality is I don't know what whirlwind you're in the midst of. I don't know what consequences you're currently facing, whether they're your fault, whether they're someone else's fault. But I do know that God allows us to face these consequences, not to scare us off, but to draw us closer. I know that as people, we will continue to face these consequences of sin. But as believers, we can respond in those moments as David responded. We can remember that Jesus Christ already paid the price for all of those sins. He already took the burden that was the ultimate, ultimate consequence of everything that we've done. He took that upon himself. He died for our sake. I can realize that. I can trust in that. And when those consequences still come, when those other, honestly, lesser consequences enter into my life, I can respond to them with prayer, putting my heart where it belongs. I can respond with the right perspective, putting my mind where it belongs, and I respond with praise, putting God where he belongs. So let's go before him now. Lord, we thank you that you are God who loves us enough to discipline us. God, we know that it's not always clear what your plan is, But God, we are thankful that there always is a plan. Lord, we 
Just ask that we would be people who are committed to following your plan. That God, are people committed to wanting to know and understand and follow your will. And if you would, just take a moment right now. Go before the Lord. Ask him, what consequences are you facing? And if you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to show you a direction to head. To show you maybe how to, to move in the midst of of this dark consequence. Whether you need a moment to just pull back and put your heart in the right place through prayer, whether you need a moment to just change your perspective, a conversation that maybe needs to happen with a friend. Ask the Lord to still give you a heart of praise. Ask the Lord to move in those ways, give you direction right now.